So today's main passage is going to be from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. And we're going to be backing up a little bit into what we talked about a little bit yes, or last week, just simply because it continues very well into this week's scriptures. So starting in Matthew 7 at 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, a good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree, bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is our passage today that we're going to be addressing, and we're going to tag up and go into other passages, and then tag up again and go into other passages. We're going to go back and forth. Amen? So Jesus starts with a broad path. And like I said, we're going to start there because it leads into what we're talking about today. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. And then he says, and you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. For me, when I'm reading passages like this and I start reading things about fruit and trees and pathways, my brain goes into the way back machine and says, wait a minute, we're going back to Genesis. We're going back to the Garden of Eden because that's where we find the first mention of trees and fruit. And we know that gardens were a little bit different in ancient Israel than they are today. I kind of like to garden. I'm not really very good at it, but I do kind of like it. I think it's fun. It's fun to see the little seeds start out and then grow into something, and especially something that you get to eat from. I really like to see Michelle's joy when the tomatoes finally start to ripen and she can go out and pick them. I'm an okay tomato person, but I love watching her pick them because she thoroughly enjoys picking tomatoes. But gardens for us today are different than gardens were back in ancient Israel. Really, our gardens today are really just vegetable plots. I mean, really, you've got a few rows of something that you're growing, peas, tomatoes, carrots, peppers, cucumbers, whatever. It's a vegetable plot. It's there to serve a purpose, to grow something. It's utilitarian. Gardens back in ancient Israel were something else. They, multiple families or multiple generations would live in a home, and the home would be passed on from one to another. And as each generation started to rise up and take possession of that home, they would change the garden. They might add another section to the garden. They may change some of the decorative carvings in there. But gardens in ancient Israel were a place to meet. They were a place to get together, to entertain, because it would be light outside. And it would be cooler outside than it would be inside during the day. And so the garden took on a very different purpose. It was, it's more like our, our backyard 
in America with our, with our grill and our patio and maybe a pool and maybe some herbs for the kitchen and something more along that lines. It's not really the vegetable plot that we tend to think about when we first hear the word garden here in America in the 21st century. And so when God planted a garden in Eden, he planted a place, he made a place with order he made a place where Adam and God could get together in the cool of the day and spend time with one another. He created a very different environment than just a vegetable patch. And it was common that the gardens would have a broad central path going through it. And then it would have smaller branching paths going in different directions to different areas. Maybe a place for medicinal herbs. Maybe a place for kitchen herbs. Maybe a place with a little bench to sit and talk. Maybe a place for a little bit of privacy and quiet reflection. It would have different areas for different purposes. All of them beautiful. All of them serving a need or a purpose. And so God planted a garden back in Eden. And there were two main trees really within this garden. There was, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's one that we're all very familiar with. There was a second tree that we're also going to talk about in a few moments. Now, I know for all those who are going to be literalists, there were lots and lots of trees. I know that. I get it. Adam could eat from every tree in the garden. I got it. There are lots and lots of trees. Okay, for the sake of today, there really were two trees of significance, right? There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was a second tree. And so there's that broad path going through the garden to the center where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. And so when Jesus is talking about the broad path, it brings my mind back to the Garden of Eden and these trees. It also brought my mind back to something else. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. In it, you have, in case you're unfamiliar with the story, you have a master demon, Screwtape, who is writing letters to his understudy, his nephew, Wormwood. And Wormwood's job was to try to deceive a human, and he called him his patient, and he wanted to deceive him and get him ready to go to hell, right? And so he's coming up with these grand plans, these grand schemes on how he will get his patient to go to hell. And his uncle, Screwtape, who's a master deceiver, writes his, son, his nephew letters. And in one of the letters, he says this to him. He says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. You see, the message that his uncle was trying to let him know was, you don't need some grand scheme, some grandiose plan to get this human patient to go to hell. Not when something small would do instead, right? No sudden turns. There's no need for murder when a simple offense will do. Back in Matthew 6, remember Jesus said, you've, it has been, you've learned, right? You've been told, do not commit murder. But I say to you, don't be angry with your brother without a cause. Why? Because murder will certainly bring us to hell, but so will an offense without cause. It's just as sure a way to get us to hell as murder is, right? He said to him, let there be no milestones. Why? Because you don't want the patient to know how far they've gone. You don't want them to realize how closely they're getting to hell. You don't want any milestones on the way. You want them to just walk along that gentle, smooth, comfortable path, just easing on down into hell. Don't give them any milestones to wake them up. 
Don't give them any milestones, anything that might alert them to where they are, the condition of their soul. It says don't give them any signposts. Don't let them know where they're headed. That's the worst thing. You don't want them to know this. You've got to keep them lulled, a sense of security, a sense of peace. And so there's this broad path, and many are they who find it, and it leads to a wide gate, and many are they who enter in by it. And Jesus then says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And we think of prophets. And a prophet, you know, it's a religious term, right? You start thinking about, you know, like Moses up there with the Ten Commandments. You start thinking about, you know, um, Elijah and Elisha, right? You start thinking of this religious term, this prophet, this God-man, this spiritual man. And that's true. A prophet is someone, from this sense, that hears from heaven, that gets a word for a person, or gets a word for a people, or gets a word about a season. They're a person who looks around and sees through Jesus' eyes what's going on and can share that with people around them in hopes of turning their hearts back to God. But Jesus is talking about false prophets here. He's talking about someone else. Someone who looks at the world through a particular lens of eyes that's not Jesus' eyes. Someone who listens and sees the landscape and starts describing the landscape of the world, but is not in order to turn people back to Jesus. And so he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. See, the false prophets are all along that broad path. The false prophets are there calling out to you, ah, Tony, what you need is fame. Fame, Tony. Pursue fame. When you get to the end of this path, in the center of the garden, there's a place where you can pick and you can eat and you can be famous. I did it. It's awesome. I came back here to let you know you can do it. Right? I came here to let you know you can be famous and that's how you find true happiness in this life. Right? Looks around and he says, no, Marissa, no, you can have money. You can have money. That's the answer. That's the answer. That's what I picked. When I got to the center, I picked and I got money. And I've just come back a little bit on the path to let you know you can have money. And money is great and money is wonderful and have as much money as you can have. And money, 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 money. Money, 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 money. Right? I mean, these prophets are there along the path. And they are dressed in sheep's clothing, which just simply means they're trying to let you know, they're trying to portray something, that they're good and that they're safe and that they know what they're talking about and there's nothing for you to worry about. Just keep walking. Just keep walking down that path. Just keep going. One foot in front of the other, in front of the other. Just an easy, gentle path. Money, fame, fun. You can have as much fun as you want. You can experience as much fun as you want. Chase fun. Pursue fun. Jeremy, pursue fun with everything in you. Pursue the fun. That's what life's all about. Don't worry about that other stuff. Pursue the fun. Pursue the fun. That's it. And they just encourage us to keep walking and to keep walking. They point the way. And one cries out, have another one. Have another one. You've had one. Have another one. Have some more. Have some more. Keep going. Keep pursuing. And we round the corner. And there in the midst of the garden is that tree. Right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. And its boughs are weighed down with fruit. So much fruit, it's just right there for the picking. Anything that we could imagine. Any pleasure. 
any experience, anything we want. It's right there for the having. 1 John 2.16 says, when he's, descri- John says des- when he's describing this, he says, listen, it's the lust of the flesh, and it's the lust of the eyes, and it's the pride of life. When Eve looks at that garden, when she looks at that fruit in the garden on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she says that it was pleasing to the eye and pleasing to taste good and that it was pleasing because it would make one like God, right? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And so that's what awaits for us at the end of that broad path. And if we pick from it and eat from it, we'll be satisfied. If we pick from it and eat from it, everything will be okay. If we pick from it and eat from it over and over, and if, and if that one didn't satisfy, then another one. And if that one didn't satisfy, then another one. And if that one didn't satisfy, then another one. And if that one didn't satisfy, then another one. Let me just pick something. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 comes to a conclusion about this. It's a fairly long passage, but bear with me. He says, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So I undertook great projects. And I built houses for myself, and I planted vineyards, and I made gardens and parks, and planted all kinds of trees and fruit in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, and the treasure of kings and provinces." I acquired male and female singers, a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused myself no pleasure. My heart took delight in my labor, and this was all the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon's saying, listen, for all of the fruit that I picked off of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for everything I tried to do, every single thing, every way I tried to fill the emptiness that was in my soul, the emptiness that was in my heart, every time I looked for some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose in life, and I picked from that tree, I discovered in the end, it was all meaningless. There was nothing to it. I was still ravenous. My hunger was never satisfied. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not, or be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know the will of God, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. Right? Don't be conformed any longer. Think of like a jello mold, right? Just, you know, you put the jello in, it sets, you pull it off, and there's the pattern of this world. Or maybe more accurately, maybe a better one, think of like a die cut, one of those metal dies, the dies for, for, for um, metal working, right? And they put the sheet of metal in, and they pull the lever down, and it stamps out the part. As quickly as you can pull the lever, it just stamps out another part. 
another part, another part, another part, another part. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. No longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but let your mind be renewed, renewed in God. Why? So that we can know the will of God, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't be conformed to the patterns. Don't take from that tree. Don't take from that fruit. Don't just try to do what the prophets, the false prophets along the path are telling you. Jesus says there's a narrow gate and a difficult path. He says, enter by the narrow gate because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This verse petrifies me. This verse petrifies me. Because now, for the moment, I'm just going to talk to you who call yourself Christians. Whether you're here today with us and you say, yes, I gave my life to Jesus, I'm a Christian. Or you're at home and you're a Christian. This verse is for us. Because they're saying, listen, I cast out demons in your name, Jesus. And you're telling me I can't go in? I prophesied in your name, Jesus, and you're telling me I don't get to go in? I did mighty wonders. It just means I performed miracles. It means I prayed for someone and they got healed. It means that I prayed and food was multiplied. It means water was turned into wine. Dead were raised. I did those things in your name, Jesus. I did that for your kingdom, Jesus. I don't get to go in at the end? That verse petrifies me. Jesus says, and I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice life or lawlessness. He said it's a difficult way which leads to eternal life. Christianity is hard. It's not an easy life. Make, moment, make no mistake, Christianity is not a way of life for the faint of heart. But before we go into that, I just want to remind us, because too often in Christianity, I think we have, we have been a bit hard on people. And I don't think Jesus was hard on people. In fact, I think Jesus was fun. I think Jesus was a lot of fun. And here's the reason why I believe that. Because the scripture says that Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. And if Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors, get this, that means they hung out with Jesus too. He had to be fun. He had to be fun or they wouldn't have hung out with them. They'd have been like, uh, no, dude, you're killing the buzz. Get out of here. Right? Dude, you're bringing me down with all this heaven stuff and sin stuff. Stop condemning me. Dude, please get out. Right? I mean, they would not have hung out with him if he wasn't fun. Jesus had to be fun. So Christians, let's be fun. Okay? City Church, let's be fun. If you're out there in the interwebs watching this today and you need a church to come to, please come to City Church. We would love to have you. We have lots of space to social distance. And more than that, we have fun because we love Jesus. And Jesus was fun. Amen? So listen, the Christian life is hard. That doesn't mean it's not fun. And it doesn't mean it shouldn't be fun. Right? Okay. So having said that, had to make sure we had that, that caveat on there. So Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a reason, though, that Christianity is difficult. And it's not because of Jesus. It's not because of his yoke or his burden. It's because we have an enemy. We have an enemy of our souls. It's because he is in never-ending opposition to us. Every second of every day, there is an enemy 
who wants nothing more than to kill, steal, and destroy, who wants nothing more than to take your children and make sure their children have no future and no hope. There is an enemy of our souls who wants nothing more than to see us trapped and bound for all eternity with him, a pathetic little creature that the Scripture says we're going to look on in heaven and we're going to say, that, that is the tormentor of humanity. That is the reason why men have gone to hell. That vile little thing, that's it. But he's an active, roaring lion looking for whomever he can devour. And he's in opposition. He oppresses all day long, every day, without fail, without ceasing, always, 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 always. And that's why it's a hard life. That's why it's a difficult one. And so there'll be those who will stand before Jesus and say, but I prophesied in your name. I spoke the words of heaven over that person and saw them set free of demons in your name. Now I know I'm, I'm 21st century American too. I hear demons and I'm like, really? That's a difficult one to grasp. I'm 21st century American. I went to public school in the United States of America. Uh, demons, really? 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 It's hard for us to grasp that in today's world. It's one of those barriers, one of those stumbling blocks that is before us as Americans. But it's real. The spiritual realm is real. It may be difficult for us to handle, but it's real. Make no mistake, there is an enemy looking to destroy us. And Jesus says, depart. You who practice lawlessness, depart. And practicing lawlessness is a really pretty simple idea. It's when we try to get better at being lawless, rehearsing a lie ahead of time so we make sure it comes out well, thinking about a lie that we told in the past and why it didn't work to maybe be able to tell a better one in the future, right? Thinking about ways to maybe, this is kind of silly, I admit it, I speed too, come on, I'm sure everyone in this room who drives a car has at least once exceeded the speed limit, but come on, there are times when I'm like, you know what, if I just go 79, that's just slow enough that the cops won't really care, right? It's practicing lawlessness. Now, I'm not trying to say you got to be perfect. I'm certainly not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying keep that in mind. When we do that in our lives, when we look for ways to improve our skills at being bad, we're practicing lawlessness. And Jesus said, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, depart from me. The scripture says that where lawlessness abounds, the love of many grow cold. The love of many people grows cold when I practice lawlessness in my life. That's a scary thought. And so Jesus says, listen, you who practice lawlessness, depart from me. Romans 8.37 though, Romans 8.37 says this, says that you are more than conquerors. Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors. I love this verse. I love this verse for the simple reason that one day I was reading it and I stopped and said, wait a minute, how do you be more than a conqueror? Right? The conqueror is the winner. How do you be more than a winner? I mean, really, how do you be more than the winner? I'm the winner. Oh no, I'm the more than the winner. Wait a minute. No, who are you? Shut up. You're not the more than the winner. How you can't be more than the winner. I'm the winner. How do you do that? And so I started praying about it and thinking about it. And it occurred to me, Here's the thing. 
When a, when a nation, when the Romans conquered a land, they would put in a legion in place. They would, they would put a legion in place from people from other countries, right, to be able to hold that territory. They conquered it, but they have to do so with force. They have to do so with an army. To make sure that you don't rise up and that you don't rebel against them, they've got an army in place to keep you sitting in your seats, to keep you being good and obedient little people. So they put an army in place. Well, Jesus says you're more than conquerors because you don't need an army in place. You don't need someone to hold you in your spot any longer. Why? Because your heart is going to get attached to the kingdom of heaven. Your heart is going to get attached to who your father is in heaven. Your heart is going to get attached to who Jesus is. Your heart is going to be changed from this old stony heart that needed to be conquered and held in place. And instead you're going to get a new heart of flesh that loves Jesus and beats for Jesus. His blood is going to flow through your veins. His spirit is going to be in your, in your man. His words are going to come out of your mouth. Why? Because you're going to be more than a conqueror. It's why Methodism doesn't really work. I'm going to just try to be really good and do behavior modification and be a really, really good human. No, I need to be more than a conqueror. I need my heart to be transformed so that I have the heart of Jesus. So it beats with the heart of Jesus. So it sees people with the eyes of Jesus. I need to be more than a conqueror. And that's what he says. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know the will of God. You can be more than a conqueror. You see, there's a narrow gate. It's not enough to just walk down the path. It's not enough just to walk down that hard path. There's a narrow gate that we've got to get through to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that, that gate that's there, it's the tree of life. That gate is the tree of life in the midst of the garden. That gate is the tree of life. And here's the thing about the tree of life. It doesn't look all that appealing. The tree of life doesn't look that great. The fruit that's hanging on it doesn't look that pretty. It's a difficult path to get to, remember. There are few who find it. But when you get down along the way and you make it along the path and you get to the point where you get to see the tree of life and you look at it, the fruit that's hanging there doesn't look like fruit that you really want to eat. It doesn't look all that appetizing. It doesn't make us feel good about us. The fruit on that tree isn't attractive. In fact, the tree itself isn't attractive. It's rough and it's blotched and it's stained by the juice from that fruit. That tree has no leaves. It's only got two branches going out to either side. It's rigid, it's hard, it's inflexible. And the fruit that's hanging there on that tree is bruised. The fruit that's hanging there on that tree is beaten. The fruit that's hanging there on that tree, it's seeping blood red juice. That fruit that's hanging there on the tree, wow, it almost looks like a man. That hanging, bleeding, bruised, beaten, pierced, and naked fruit hanging there. And Jesus says, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in that last day. That tree that other second tree in the garden. It's the tree of life. And the fruit that hangs on it looks a whole lot like Jesus hanging on that cross. And remember, God said, after Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, we've got to cast them out of the garden. Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in this sinful state, we've got to cast them out of the garden. 
So there's the opportunity for them to be reconciled with me before they live forever. I need to make sure they have the opportunity before they live forever. I've got to know that they have the opportunity to spend it with me. I've got to cast them out of the garden. They've got to leave the garden. It's the only way so that I know that when they choose to eat of that tree, it will be to be with me forever. Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That narrow gate is the cross. We can only enter the kingdom through the cross. And so for me, for me to enter the kingdom, I must understand that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. Jesus didn't die to set men free and women free from the bondage of sin and death. For me to enter the kingdom of heaven, I have to internalize that fruit on that tree. I have to eat of the fruit. I have to eat of Jesus' blood or uh, Jesus' body and drink of his blood. I need to do that. Because Jesus didn't die for 17-year-old Kevin's sins at Ithiel Falls Christian Camp when I gave my life to Jesus. Jesus didn't die for 20-year-old college Kevin's sins when Kevin sinned against his teachers and Kevin sinned against his friends and Kevin sinned against the people in his lives. Jesus didn't die for 30-year-old Kevin, right? Father and his husband and the sins that I committed against my family and my wife and my church and my community and my parents. He didn't die for those sins. He didn't die for 40-year-old Kevin, professional, who sins against still his family, his wife, his children, his neighbors, the people in his church, who still sins against his clients, his boss, every time that he does something that is not hitting the mark. He didn't die for 50, hopefully 50, we'll see, 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70, 80, however long. Hey, my grandmother's 99. God bless her, right? I have, could, could get there. But he didn't die for that. He didn't die for the sins that I did yesterday. He didn't die for the sins that I did today. He died for each and every sin I've ever committed, ever will commit, am committing right now. He sinned, or he sinned. He died for every single wretched, evil, horrible thought I've ever thought. Every single act I've ever done. Every single time I failed to act when I should have. He died for every single one of those things. He died for Kevin. Not some mental ascent of dying for the world. He died for me. He died because of me. He died instead of me. And unless I will eat of the fruit of the tree of life and eat of that flesh and drink of that blood and internalize that and find my nourishment there, unless I will get to a point where I say, that's where I find my being, that's where I find my nourishment, that's where I find my life, unless I internalize that for me, I'm going to get to the end of the path and Jesus is going to say, I'm sorry, depart from me. You practice lawlessness. He died for me. He died because of me. He died instead of me. The scripture says, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm convinced though that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so to close out this service, I want to encourage us, let's stand up. And if you're at home, I invite you to join in with us because we're going to pray to, to close out this service. And if today you're watching or today you're here and you can say to yourself, you know what? I know I'm walking down that broad path. I know that's me. 
I'm listening to the prophets and I'm chasing after what they're saying and I want to pick from that fruit and that's you and you say, yep, that's me. Well, I want to give you an invitation today to leave that broad path, to turn around and walk the other direction and to seek out and find that difficult path that leads to Jesus. You have that opportunity today and we're going to pray for you in a moment. And if you find yourself sitting here today and you're like, you know what? I do know. I do know that difficult path. I've walked that difficult path. But you know what? I know that from time to time I stray off that difficult path because darn it's hard living this Christian life. Then you know what? We're going to pray for you today too. If you think that you just might be, that you might get to the end of that path and maybe Jesus might say to you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, we're going to pray for you too. Because today we're going to join together because the scripture says where two or more are gathered together, he is right there in our midst. And we're going to pray that every single one of us has the opportunity and every single one of us is able to find our way down that difficult path and get to the end and hear the words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And after we've prayed together as a people, if you want prayer, there's going to be our prayer team up here and they would be honored to pray with you and to covenant with you to see you get through and down this path to make sure that at the end you get to hear those words come on in my good and faithful servant so let's pray city church heavenly father we bless you we honor you and we thank you and right now with every eye closed and every head bowed if today you find yourself walking down that broad path and you're like you're thinking to yourself i need to get on the good path i need to be on the path that leads to Jesus. I need to be on the path that gets to that fruit. I need Jesus in my life today. Then I encourage you, raise up your hand that we can know to pray for you. If you're at home today and you're watching this message, then I encourage you, send us a message. Let us know to pray for you. We have resources for you. We have people that love you and want to walk alongside of you and encourage you to get down the good path. And so if that's you today, I invite you, just raise your hand. Raise your hand and we will pray for you. Raise your hand and we will walk, walk alongside of you. We bless you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We bless you, Jesus, for the people raising their hand. We thank you, Jesus, for the ones who are raising their hand today, saying, I want more of Jesus. I know I need more of Jesus. I don't want to listen any longer to those voices. We thank you for them. We pray, Lord Jesus, that right now you would seal them in their place and in all eternity, Lord God. Lord Jesus, we pray as a people, as City Church, Lord God, that you would come and you would lead us and you would direct us and you would encourage us to walk down that path, that hard and difficult path, and get to the end, Lord Jesus, and eat of your flesh and drink of your blood. And so I pray, Lord, for City Church, for this new season we're in. Lord God, for this difficult season we've been walking through. But I pray, Lord Jesus, for your Holy Spirit to come and to fall upon us and empower us to be your church, to be your life, to be your words of life and hope and peace for this generation. I pray, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit to come and fill us with your righteousness and your peace and your hope. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would go with us today and you would strengthen us and guide us down that hard path. That you would give us eyes to see the struggles of our neighbors, the eyes to see the struggles of those around us. And Lord God, that you would give us the knowledge to know to lend a hand and to bring others along with us. So we bless you and we honor you and we thank you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen.